0: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor by a moral code regardless of who is watching.
1: Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. Thank you for joining us for part two of our two-part episode on cyberspace if you recall, last week we had the pleasure of speaking with the Chancellor for the North Dakota University System, retired U.S. Navy Captain Mark Hagarot, who, because of his decades of experience on this topic, had walked us through some of the basics of cyberspace, what he found to be concerning but also promising with the overall technology. Now if you fast forward to this week, we've had the opportunity to speak with the former director of the National Security Agency, one of the world's largest intelligence agencies, as well as a former director for the US Cyber Command. So in this role, Admiral Rogers was willing to speak to us about his thoughts on cyberspace, what we should be concerned about with attack vectors, with the ever-pervasive move to the cloud as we're taking all of our digital infrastructure and our digital life and we're uploading it into these massive mainframes. What What should we be thinking about? What should we be concerned about as we do so? We also step into and then back out of the Russian election interference for 2016. We also talk about the Russian penetration of the joint staff network system several years back and just once again how this can be an ever pervasive threat where the reality is in many cases going on the attack is much stronger than actually trying to play defense. So. How do you handle this as a nation state? How do you handle a situation where it actually behooves your competitors and your adversaries to want to go on the attack against you to exfiltrate and take your information? Or in many cases, to simply try to make your life as complicated and as difficult as possible. How do you, as someone who uses a digital system, an iPad, an Android smartphone, how do you actually protect yourself and your family when you're away from the worksite? Because everyone's trying to gain access to your system, frankly, all of the time. Admiral Rogers also walks us through some of his concerns about the state of the U.S. financial networks and, and what we should be thinking about as we consider America's soft digital underbelly. And at the end of the day, Admiral Rogers reinforces something that I can tell you I am personally very passionate about. And that is just the fact that at the end of the day, the number one factor for success remains leadership. So you can fold technology into this. You can start talking about a lot of fancy and far out things. But at the end of the day, it's a very human endeavor. You are in charge of leading and setting the culture for organizations, for companies, for your own family, for your community. And that all revolves around leadership and our ability to want to pull together and do things together as a team. So before we step into part two of cyberspace with Admiral Mike Rogers, make a quick plug once again, We every week we have thousands of individuals who are listening to our episodes, mostly here in the United States, but quite a few, I've been surprised, quite a few members of the international community also check in to listen to the podcast, and that's great. But when you go on Apple Podcasts or you check some of the other sources, there's only a few dozen reviews that have been left for us. So please, this is a labor of love. Take the time. Just hit pause. Take 30 seconds. Give us five stars. Leave us a positive review. Let us know how this podcast is uh, affecting you. And frankly, reach out to me via Twitter at Guy Snodgrass. Let me know some of the topics that you'd love to see covered in the next few weeks and coming months as we continue to move forward with providing this podcast as a resource. One last thing I was going to mention is that I'm really incredibly excited about a second passion project of mine. Many of you will recall that I published a book at the end of last year describing what I learned and the experience of working alongside Secretary Mattis, the former Secretary of Defense, inside the Pentagon and as part of the Trump administration. It was a great experience, was very lucky to have captured that and published it at the end of last year. And here, coming up in about a month and a half, my second book is coming out. The title is Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. It's a very quick read. Each chapter has a, an anecdote that is drawn from my experience as a Top Gun instructor, and then I draw it out. And, and once again, on the theme of leadership, what does that mean? What what does that experience mean for each of us? Lessons span the gamut from never waiting to make a difference, to nothing worthwhile is ever easy, to never waiting to make a friend until you need one. So if you would, go ahead and pop on over to amazon.com. Mean a great deal if you'd be willing to pre-order a copy. It comes out September 15th, and I look forward to getting it into your hands. So with that being said, thanks for taking the time to leave a review. Thanks for taking time to pop over to amazon.com and pre-order your copy. And we'll go ahead and step in now to the second episode, the part two of our conversation on cyberspace with the former director of the National Security Agency and the former commander of U.S. Cyber Command, retired U.S. Navy Admiral, Mike Rogers. Admiral Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Guy, good to be here. Absolutely, well, I've been excited about this one for a number of weeks now. As you and I talked about privately, you know, we'd had an embarrassment of riches. We had former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Workon to talk about the third offset strategy that launched us into a really fun, segment on artificial intelligence, and then now we're stepping into another aspect of kind of that technology side of the Department of Defense and national security, and that is cyber and cyberspace, the fifth domain. And you were a phenomenal get for us as an interviewee because of the fact that not only have you worked in that realm for a lot uh, in a long period of time, but you also had worn a dual hat as both the commander for Cybercom, but also the director of NSA. So, I look forward to going down both those roads with you. Thank you for your time. And, and really, I guess, maybe the best way to start off, because we have a very broad listener base, is in your mind, as a practitioner, you know, kind of what is that cyberspace? Why does it matter as you think about where we are today in America? So, in
1: simplistic terms, I would define cyberspace as the realm of the network and data. And so, when you ask people, why should I care about networks and data? I would argue because they underpin in many ways much of the economic structure of the digital economy of the 21st century. They are the building block in many ways for enabling technologies that are making life incredibly easier for us. I mean, think about the digital connectivity, the capability we have now to take with us in a mobile device, in a laptop, you know, anytime, anywhere, almost any place. It's just think about the productivity, the impact on us Our businesses, us as individuals, the ability to maintain contact with professional acquaintances, friends and family around the world. Think about how we would have handled a pandemic without the ability to use this world of the network to continue to operate from home, to continue to communicate as you and I are doing today via a video link. That's all driven by the power of the network and this idea about using the network to harness the power of data. One thing that strikes
0: me as well, because I'm a, uh, I think as our listeners are starting to pick up on, I'm a pretty much a huge nerd. I have been my entire life. <laughs> uh, when I was in middle school and in uh, junior high, I started my first electronic bulletin board system. Uh, you know, back in those days, it was a dial-up 56K modem. People could Woo! dial in, you know, to your computer, get the nice ASCII kind of uh, block, you know, font and everything else. One of the things that strikes me is before networking became huge, if someone wanted to gain entry to my computer, really, they could do it one of two ways. They could dial in through a, through a phone line, what they call POTS line, plain old telephone old service. Telephone or they could actually, you know, come to my house, break into my room and gain access to the computer that way. So it seems to me that something that has made cyber so important is that not only has it permitted this Internet of Things where, where a multitude of devices are always on, they're always connected to cyberspace, but it's also really increased kind of that threat vector. The fact that if everything's touching everything else at all times, that means you're not necessarily guarding against one or two paths that someone could take to get to you. Now it's it's really opened that aperture quite a bit. I mean, is that a fair
1: representation? Yeah, because now, remember, challenge is the flip side of opportunity. And while this world of the network offers amazing opportunity and amazing capability, you also have to be honest and acknowledge the flip side is it comes with significant challenges, not the least of which. Is this broad interconnectivity, which now allows access from the outside world to so many different things. And because much of it is all connected, you gain access to one, you can move upstream and get into a whole lot of other things. as we've always done this podcast,
0: of course, we're talking to a wide audience. so we're always a little circumspect, especially with individuals like yourself, right? I mean, um you've you've you're very well aware of the tapestry of kind of the digital fabric of America mm-hmm. and overseas as well. So, you know, when you think about where we are as a society, are there any concerns that strike you just in broad brush aspects about how interconnected we've become?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it play out in this COVID kind of scenario where a challenge, this happened to be a health issue, but you see the same thing in the world of the network. Very quickly, take a look at NotPetya, the last major global cyber kind of issue we had June of 2017, where a Russian effort to launch malware focused on the Ukraine, attempting to impact in a negative way the Ukrainian economy, ends up spreading on a global basis. So this idea that, you know, remember, cyber doesn't recognize geographic boundaries. And so the challenge in one physical domain very quickly has the potential to move broadly across the world, much like a pandemic. It's not by chance, for example, that in cyber, we constantly use medical analogies. It's a virus. You know, we we talk about malicious software, malware, you know, those things that infect systems and they infect systems as a virus. It's not by coincidence that we use a lot of medical terminology, if we will, to try to explain some of the dynamics in the cyber arena the other thing that's really interesting to the world we find ourselves in now combine that connectivity with technology that increasingly makes it easy to manipulate images sound data in a way where it becomes very difficult in many scenarios at first blush for a user a customer a reader a listener to really discern, so am I seeing something that is objective, accurate, true, or am I seeing something that is distorted, false, manipulated, and therefore based on that manipulation, I am driven towards a conclusion that may not be inaccurate. That is a huge issue, particularly in democratic societies where you have authoritarian states and others, Russia being a, a big example of this, is highlighted in the 26, 2016 election, where you have entities out there who now want to turn this technology, this huge connectivity into a way to drive divisions within nations. We're already divided as it is. The Russians, for example, they didn't create those divisions, but they are pouring gasoline on those divisions. They study us. They they take a look at the issues that tend to divide us, vice unite us. And and so they use this technology, they use this connectivity as a way to keep potential competitors fractured, divided, unable to achieve political will to come together to address hard issues.
0: Well, and it strikes me too, you know, you mentioned in a democratic society how dangerous it can be when you manipulate or shift information. I'm thinking about just society as a whole, the global society that as we've turned away from a reliance on books and the written word and more towards electronic storage mediums and others, that not only could you alter that information, but once you've done so, you may be affecting the journal of record or the, the most significant record that you've stored in the Library of Congress or somewhere. And that could have really damaging effects if you accelerate where we are, maybe say 10, 15, 20 years down the road where someone goes, the master key is no longer effective because it's been altered.
1: Yeah, you laugh. I had this conversation. I won't say which nation, but I will say it was a five eyes nation. I'm talking to their, I was asked to talk to their chief digital archivist, who was very proud of the fact that all of the written records of this nation were being converted into digital files. And when I said, Have you thought about the implications of digital manipulation? He just looked at me like, What? I go, what happens if the records are all digital and capable of being manipulated? And someone ends up doing that. What does that say about your history? What does that say about the foundational documents? that you constantly are referencing, you know, that outline the, the basis of why we are, who we are, what we are, etc. That's a real interesting, that is an interesting challenge.
0: You know, something else, and I, I'm curious your take, we did raise this briefly with former Captain uh, Mark Hagerot, retired mm-hmm. Captain, I should say, Mark Hagerot. It strikes me as well, you know, I've been the recipient for my time when I was in uniform of at least a half dozen, if not closer to a dozen notification letters saying that my Personally identifiable information had been compromised or my record had been compromised or my SF-86 that contained all, not only my information, but information of close relatives and contacts have been compromised. Something else I think that, that the average American or the average citizen doesn't necessarily contemplate is that once your information has been taken, you know, you own it, if you will, forever. Because your social security number, your date of birth, key facts and figures about you and your and who you relate with, that usually doesn't change. And so that's what's interesting to me is that if someone exercises a cyber attack, they gain, they are able to exfiltrate information of a personal nature about a large number of people. I mean, you could hang on to that for decades before you actually have use of it. Or, of course, as we've seen, as technology has increased, you could cross link that to a lot of other repositories and
1: start doing some pretty interesting things. I mean, there's a reason to that point. There's a reason why you see attacks against large data holdings, why you see the Chinese and others, for example, penetrating, you know, the Office of Personnel Management to pulling SF-86s, which is the format, as you and I know, that you use to fill out when you're granted security clearance by the U.S. government. You have to fill out a format and call it standard form 86, sf eighty six in slang it it also goes to it's an interesting discussion in the digital world so what does privacy and anonymity really mean in a digital environment in which we constantly are creating a digital record that we don't control and that is widely held by others you know so what does privacy mean what does anonymity mean in this in this world i think we spend need to spend some more time as a society as a nation it's a broader global community, I think, particularly in democratic societies. So what, just was that, what does that mean? How do we achieve privacy? How do we maintain some level of anonymity if that is our choice? Now for many people, they would argue, hey, I'm an open book, I don't care, anybody can know everything about me, and I go, got the theory, not so sure the reality is quite that clean, but I understand the theory
0: well true and and of course when you start thinking about the ways in which even the most innocuous of information can be used you yeah. know imagine if you're that business person and uh, you're you're corporate Or maybe it's an overseas company that's trying to uh, do some negotiations with you. And they've amassed just a tremendous amount of intelligence on who you are and who Admiral Rogers is, what he cares about, inflection points, et cetera. I mean, it's going to give you a, I guess you could say, it's really not unfair. It's just an advantage over the person you're negotiating with. And it can be used in a myriad of ways, whether it's advertising, et cetera. And like we said earlier, or like I said, once it's out there, once you own that, that data genie does not get put back in a bottle. And I'll never forget when I was... In grad school in uh, the 1999 to 2000 timeframe, that's when like big data, that term was really coming about. And I remember how excited everybody was up, uh, you know, in, in college because they were like, man, they're all heading off to the big companies. Uh, Akamai was one of the big ones at the time that people wanted to join forces with. You know, when you hoover up a lot of this data, it's just, it's just there and you have it. And 30 years on a road, you can look back and, and utilize it. So it's, a, it's certainly a brave new world. Yeah, um, and it's
1: not, if I could, it's not sure. theoretical. You see that. We call it social engineering where adversaries, for example, will tailor emails based on their research on you as an individual. Hey, we know you contribute to the following causes. We know that you tend to downlink a lot of particular areas. So we'll tailor an email that we think based on our knowledge of you, you have a higher probability of opening clicking on a link, downloading software, which happens to be malware, which then enables us to access your system. You're seeing adversaries employ this knowledge generated remotely on you in a very precise way on a massive scale.
0: One question I've been uh, actually dying to ask you is, cause I've, I've been involved in this debate off and on over the last maybe, maybe decade. And that is, you know, this uh, belief that it's more important to have a lot of these large data warehouses or data repositories with a single provider, versus having some of that information or at least different parts of information distributed across a variety of providers. I guess the thought process being it's easier to defend with a sole service provider. But at the same time, if you gain access, then usually you've got the keys of the kingdom per, like, for example, the RSA key hack that happened years ago where, you know, you kind of stole the master key. And then now that government could use that to attack other entities that relied on that key. So do you have any, you know, insight or is it really just at the stage right
1: now where vulnerabilities exist regardless of how you structure it? Yeah, this was clearly, I mean, this is really where the the idea of the cloud comes in. By concentrating data, if you're a company, do you save money? Do you increase the security? Because it may not be an expertise that you have, but by going to a very tailored, very specialized entity, it focuses on this as their main line of business. You get improved security, you get lower costs, and quite frankly, you potentially gain greater access remotely. And cloud is really, for example, uh, cloud kind of is an embodiment of that idea. Is really paying off now in this physically dispersed world we find. There. When this came up in DoD, I used to tell you know your former boss as well as the two secretaries before him, the challenge is where I thought. We were getting it wrong was we tend to treat data as all one entity my attitude was we need to take a very risk-based model when we look at data some data were to be rapidly available to a wide range of people to include some you don't want it to have access to some data i wouldn't have an issue with at all other data i would argue boy that is really high risk so for example i would argue this came up in the DOD, I said, I would never put data associated with the nuclear triad in, in into a common cloud structure. I, I said, that really concerns me from a security standpoint. However, there's plenty of data in the department where I would argue, yep, that makes perfect sense. And it's a very reasonable risk. There's nothing that's risk free. You, you got to acknowledge that. But
0: yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, aspect to not only just the potential vulnerabilities that exist from having uh, that information now made available to people who would seek to explode it. You also lower the threshold or risk level for you know advanced persistent threats because rather than having to gain physical access or put someone at risk, you could do it from a cyber cafe in another country, mm-hmm. which means that it's just easier to have more
1: threats coming your way. But I also- I, re- I, I apologize. Bottom line, guy, look, I am a proponent of the cloud, but I am also a proponent that not all data is the same and you need to take a risk-based approach to how you- Because I would tell most organizations, look, your data is among the most valuable things, the most impactful things you have, even if you don't fully realize it. It really is amazing what you can do, given technology today with data. And I can remember 15 years ago, sitting in the Pentagon, boy, this is probably like 2002, 2004, and we were talking about defending the department's networks. And I can remember thinking at one point, these these networks, these these data concentrations are so large, Who's going to be able to do anything with them? You know, boy, did I get that wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, so not only the fact, like you said, you know, hey, proponent of the cloud, but you've got to be judicious with how you use it and what you put there. I'll also never forget that whenever I was working, uh, kind of like as you alluded to, with Secretary Mattis, and I went down to see a couple of buddies of mine on Admiral Richardson's staff, the then the Chief of Naval Operations, and they're just kind of in their CNO's you know, action group, Cave, if you will, with their computers, and they're all just kind of kicking back talking. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they said, yeah, the network's down. We can't access the cloud. We can't get to any of our documents, nor can we check our email. And so I thought that, you know, there's an interesting corollary as we think about a globally distributed force where you're heavily reliant on clouds or networks to convey the information to and from or to actually bring it to a usable state. So I guess there's that corollary that people have to at least consider that, hey, you may not have the networks when you want them. So how do you actually? Uh, have some sort of a local
1: availability of the data when you want it. Right. So that goes to questions of redundancy and resiliency. In some areas, you need redundancy so you don't have single point failure. And in other areas, particularly early on in the cyber business, everybody tended to focus on defense as just make it hard for people to access your data. If you will, kind of the perimeter idea, build a castle with strong walls to defend yourself. And I think what we've evolved to is much more of a, while that is a good thing, you also must build increased resiliency into your networks, realizing that despite your best efforts, there's a high potential that you're going to fail that in the sense that an opponent will penetrate, an opponent will gain access to your network. Not always, but you have to acknowledge there's a potential for that. And given that, you need to then come up with a defensive strategy that's focused on resiliency, the ability to continue to operate even in a degraded state as opposed to it's all or nothing.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's probably important at this stage, we're about halfway through, I want to switch gears and and get you to chat with us a little bit about just, one, your path as you gained experience with cyber, but then also it culminates with you really, I guess, having one of the nation's top cyber-related jobs, which was as we've already mentioned, the director of NSA, as well as being the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. So, you know, what, if you look back through your career, what were some of the most pivotal or most informative exposures, jobs, whatever you want to call it, that you had that really prepared you for the for the job at NSA and Cybercom?
1: So first, uh, I started a very traditional Navy career as a surface warfare officer, a ship driver, as we would say in slang. And I always told people, look, that gave me a great sense of maneuver. It gave me a great sense of terrain because people go but you were at sea and I'm going yeah we have choke points we have shallow water we have areas that we can't operate hey we, we have key terrain just like everybody else it's just a little different because it's water but it, it taught me about maneuver talking me about key terrain it talked me about the importance of command and control all things that I didn't realize that as I got more senior we're gonna come more important and I having said that I had a very traditional career up until the time, really, I became a captain. I was a ship driver, surface warfare officer for five years, lateral transfer into cryptology or signals intelligence. And then two things happened to me. Number one, the world around us, the world of signals intelligence, which was penetration of opponent communications, as well as radar systems and digital data links. As the world started, as technology started shifting into computers and networks, SIGINT, signals intelligence or cryptology, it shifted into the world of networks. So that made me focus on understanding networks in a way that really paid off for me when it came to the cyber piece. And then I came out as I put on captain. I was at the National War College. I graduated. I had to go do my joint payback three years. I went to the joint staff at my request. And I did computer network attack and computer network defense work. And then I got ripped out of that. And I was the EA to the J3. I was the EA or executive assistant to two different directors on the joint staff. And then the, the then incoming chairman of the Joint Chiefs hired me to be his one special. He had one special assistant. And mm-hmm. I don't say that to drop names. I say that suddenly I find myself as an 06. I'm living in this world where I'm dealing with uh, as a relatively mid-level, as an who's six, while that's you know, a captain of the navy, a colonel of the other services. In the big scheme of things compared to a four-star, that's kind of an upper mid-level. But as an upper mid-level guy, I'm sitting in rooms as you yourself found yourself in with the senior most leadership of our military, with foreign counterparts, talking about, you know, tough issues about Iraq, Afghanistan. Um about what's the chairman's vision, about what direction we want to take the department, about what's the role of the principal military advisor. That four-year period for me as an 06, I learned so much about a broader perspective. I had no clue that it would lead where it did. But I also remind people, you know, because oftentimes I'll get, well, if I was trying to create your career, what would would I do? (laughs) And I say, well, number one, broaden yourself I I love going to sea I I did surface work submarine work and I flew a little airborne reconnaissance which I loved but as I look at my career today I would tell people too tactical you need to step back you need to get a broader perspective you need to realize that all that tactical activity is part of a broader world and you want to try to understand it because it helps with the context of what you're doing Um, but all of that and then lastly and I'll shut up apologize for a long answer for but it was something I always tried to remember as I got more senior. I was blessed to work with senior leaders who would say to me, you know, Mike, we think you have potential. And we think there's a chance for you potentially to go on a more senior level. And we'd like to give you an opportunity. But remember, in the end, this is about your ability to deliver. You have to generate outcomes. And, but I was so lucky to have mentors and bosses who kept talking to me about possibilities, not limitations. They would always talk to me about possibilities. And that's interesting because in the Navy I was in at the time, look, the the senior in, I was a cryptologist, as I said. In the history of the United States Navy, we had never had a cryptologist go beyond two stars. Never have a operational command really outside our community. Um, And then again, it's all about timing. I I was at the right time, had a skill set that people seemed to value in the world we found ourselves in, you know, but suddenly I'm the director of intelligence for the Pacific, even though I'm not an intel officer, I'm the director of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm the 10th Fleet Commander in the Navy. I'm a, you know, what ultimately is a COCOM, and I'm running the largest intelligence organization in the U.S. government. Um, None of that would have happened for me if it hadn't been for the fact that I was given some unusual opportunities for my specialty, I was very fortunate.
0: Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, uh, I think everyone, and in fact, I remember Admiral Stavridis talked a lot about the important role that fate and timing can play in someone's career path because uh, you can be doing all the right things. I'm a big proponent of one of the sayings, which is that luck is when opportunity meets preparation, right? right? So uh, I think there's always, you know, everyone gets a vote at least on whether or not they're in the right place at the right time. Uh, And if you are, then are you prepared to meet that challenge? You know, as I think about now, we get kind of into that period of time where you're at the NSA and cybercom. One, I mean, as a co-com, what was that experience like? You're the first co-com that we have had on the show. We have talked with former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work. So you get a little bit of the bureaucratic perspective, the perspective from inside the building from a resourcing angle. But, you know, when you're a co-com, and in your case, especially as someone who's really in charge of that digital infrastructure, the,
1: that digital domain, what is that experience like? I mean, I I loved it. Uh, Boy, I I felt my whole career prepared me for it. Your focus as a combatant commander is you are working at the strategic and operational seam, but at the same time, you're leading an organization that's executing down to the tactical piece. So you're constantly bouncing between this very tactical kind of focus at times up to this operational and strategic kind of focus where you're trying to put what the range of activities that you are executing into a broader context, and so to ensure they're aligned with a broader strategy and a broader set of goals that we're trying to achieve, largely as a nation and as a department, the Department of Defense. So you find yourself constantly straddling those different levels. I found that invigorating. I thought that was the best part of the whole time. So at one day, you're in the White House, and you're talking to POTUS and the secretary and the chairman on north korea you know what are we going to do in north korea and then the same day you're talking with your team about what should rotation of forces look like uh how are we going to do this exercise etc i love the way that you kept bouncing back and forth and you know the other thing is the way the department runs the Secretary of Defense as the civilian leader for the department appointed by the president and confirmed, you know, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, has responsibility for the overall direction of the department um, and is the person held accountable for the department's performance. To execute those responsibilities, he or she has a set of teams, both civilian policymakers on the staff of the Secretary of Defense, OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, But he also or she also has both the joint chiefs of staff, which are responsible providing military advice. And in their roles as service chiefs, they man, train, and equip. They generate all this force. They generate this capability. And then that force, that capability, is presented to these combatant commanders who are the operational commanders who are tasked with taking that force, that capability that the services have generated, that the service budgets have purchased, and that the secretary then directs. Here's how they're going to be apportioned or assigned. And here's the missions that are assigned to you as a combatant commander. And then you're part of the broad dialogue about well, what direction should the department go? What should our strategy be? What should the national defense strategy look like? What should the budget look like to reflect that strategy? What investments should we make? I loved all of those discussions. I really did.
0: So, when you're in charge of a combatant command that's as unique as the NSA Cybercom kind of joint command, well, one, first, why don't you do that? Um, You were dual-hatted. Right. So Cybercom is really your combatant command hat, right? But you're also director of NSA. What is the differentiation between those two roles?
1: So, first, the rank comes with the cyber command job. I was a four-star because I was the commander of cyber command, not because I was the director of NSA. Traditionally, the director of NSA had always been a three-star. Secondly, the two organizations are separate and distinct. And while there is one commander, I always had to remind both teams. Each operates under a different legal authority. Cyber Command is an operational entity within the Department of Defense, largely driven by Title 10 of US Code, which is the legal framework that talks about the conduct of military activity. NSA is an intelligence organization, even though it was also a part of the DOD, governed largely by Title 50 of US Code, which governs the conduct of its the legal framework for the conduct of intelligence activities. Two different legal authorities two different budgets. So I always had to be mindful. I would often tell the team, I am now speaking as the commander of Cyber Command. I therefore direct the following. And then to the same group, I would say, and I am now speaking as the director of the National Security Agency. And I (laughs) authorized the following act because you had to be very specific. Different lawyers, different legal frameworks, different budgets. You couldn't move money unilaterally back and forth. The other thing that was really interesting because of the, the way it's set up You find yourself in today with the uh, generation of Space Command, you're one of the 11 senior operational commanders in the DOD, so you're in the thick of the operational role, but at the same time, you're running the largest intelligence organization in the U.S. government, and if we're honest, NSA is arguably the largest intelligence organization in the world, not headquartered in Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, or Pyongyang. And so you find yourself in the Intel world and at times it would be almost humorous. I'd be sitting with my military peers, you know, the joint chiefs, the combatant commanders, and we would be talking and somebody makes some comment about, well, those Intel guys. And I would, I would say again, because we've all known each other by the time you're all been at it that long, you all know each other. I would have to remind them, you guys realize I I am an intelligence professional. (laughs) This is what I do. And they would go, Yeah, but we're not talking about you, Mike. (laughs) So a quick follow-up
0: question. The dual-headed role, was that a conscious decision?
1: Yes. The idea being, go back when we first created Cyber Command in 2010. It was created in May of 2010, so it just celebrated its uh, 10th anniversary. The department had made the decision, which I agreed with, that cyber was an operational domain, and therefore to operate in cyber, we needed a command and control and an organizational structure very much in line with how the department broadly conducts operations across all the domains. And the idea then was, so we want to create the same kind of structure. We want a combatant command with component organizations provided by the services, but we also need to acknowledge we're starting this thing from scratch and we want to do it as quickly and as inexpensively as we can. So the next question the department asked itself was, so where does the greatest amount of cyber expertise cyber capability reside within the DOD today. This is back in 2010. And the answer was the National Security Agency out at Fort Meade. Again, why? NSA signals intelligence, focused on penetrating computer systems, you know, understanding radar systems, also had a mission on the defensive side, then information assurance, now cyber security. The answer was, well, NSA has billions of dollars in investment, deep expertise, Could we bring these two organizations together, realizing they're separate, different legal authorities, as I said, different budgets? So, you didn't want to make just one entity because we said we wanted an operational structure to actually execute cyber operations, whether it be defensive or offensive. And so, the decision was made bring these two organizations closely together, let them partner, have them unified, if you will, by one individual, the commander. There were only two individuals, really, three in the organization that were in all commander, the aide, and the senior enlisted advisor. It's the same person for Cyber Command and NSA. The last point that led into this structure was there was a thought that if you had a conflict between operations and intelligence in cyber, that if you made these two totally separate, different commanders, independent, totally independent of each other, that if you got into a disagreement, then the only way to solve it was to kick it up to the Secretary of Defense. And the question got to be, does the secdef have the time and can the mission really support this idea that hey we got to send this issues up to the secretary so the final reason really was let's make one individual accountable for making these choices between operations and intelligence and hold that individual accountable but that also gives us speed and that is true i really like the speed aspect of it
0: so obviously we could do an entire episode just on the nsa like you mentioned the intelligence aspects but since we're focusing on cyber let's kind of focus in a little bit more on the U.S. Cyber Command aspect. In that role, again, you're working with the Department of Homeland Security. You're working with a lot of these cabinet-level secretaries right. about the United States, the soft underbelly of America, right? It's a digital underbelly. You know, since, again, I mean, if you're talking to this wide audience, one, if you said, hey, there's one, two, three things you could do in your everyday life that would you'd be well-served to accomplish, to minimize your risk as you're constantly interacting with this ever-pervasive network? You know, what would you what would you commend people to think about?
1: So number one, there's no single thing, but I would say it's things like, be very mindful of the digital footprint you create. So I make a conscious decision about what I post, what I don't post, what social media I participate in, what I choose not to as a parent, I have these discussions with my children and my family. So think about the digital footprint you wanna create. Number two, particularly in the world we live in now, COVID has served to accelerate trends that were already there from a technology standpoint. Not so much create new, but really just accelerate. One of those trends was you had already been seeing the world of work and the personal life in terms of connectivity, in terms of systems, were starting to blur. And now we're all largely, not totally, but now many of us find ourselves working at home and using the same systems to both do work and simultaneously do personal things, to do webinars like this. And podcasts like this, but at the same time, on this same system in my own house, I have adult children who are living with us because of the virus who are doing gaming, who are running their own businesses, who are taking college courses. It, and it's all blurring together. So I encourage you to stop and think about what does your architecture look like at home and have you secured it? You know, how often are you changing passwords? How often are you updating your software? How what kind of security? Capability do you have loaded onto your machines?
0: Yeah, one thing you know, which I think is just ever pervasive, right? Is that, that concept of a spear phishing attack? And I, and I, like you said, I don't know if it's just because of the current time. I don't know if it's because over the course of the last year or two, my my profile is elevated slightly in the public eye. I have received more. I mean, I would say they're fairly well crafted emails where you know, hi, I'm an attorney from such and such. Here is the file you need to respond to. Right, and if you didn't know better, you'd click on it and probably inject some kind of malware into your system yeah. you and of course for me you look you open up what looks like a normal name and you realize that the email address is completely bogus which is <laughs> probably the first major tell is that just such a ever-pervasive threat these days where someone can send you an email and you know unless you are really truly looking for a threat that it's, has it has become very easy to gain access in, in such a way that it's almost tough to
1: defend it's certainly easier, but for example, for myself, I will not open an email from someone I don't know. If, it is an e- if it's an email from someone I know, and I think it might be a bad one, for example, my attitude is, if it's important, they'll reach out to me. So I'm just not open it. I'm a little concerned. I think it's suspicious. It might be from someone that I know. It might be written in a way that, that seems legitimate. It might be on a topic they know I care about. I'll think to myself, it just doesn't look right, or I'm surprised to hear from that person, or I didn't expect that. And so I, I just won't open it. My attitude is, if they care, they'll reach they'll reach out again. You know, they'll send me a note. Hey, did you get what I sent you before, Mike? Whatever. You just have to really stop and think, boy, one of the greatest penetrations we ever had, I had to deal with it. Cyber Command, the team did, not me, the team, um, was when the Russians penetrated penetrated the Joint Staff, and they got through – because when we saw like 16,000 emails, spear phishing emails directed at the Joint Staff Network, we managed to stop 99% of them before they ever got to the user. But we had a handful that got through. And we had four people who clicked on them. And that uploaded this malware from the Russians. And then they started to take move within the network. And when I talked to those four individuals afterwards, who were mid-level professionals, two were, I want to say, one was in 05, one was in 04. And the others were contractors, the two others were contractors who had been working for the department for spending spending time. I said, hey, what, what were you guys doing? If you read the email closely, the subject made no sense. <laughs> and the language of the email itself, I thought, this isn't written in flowing English. This is not someone for whom English is the primary language. And I got, sir, you, you were on the joint staff. You know what it's like. We're getting ready for the morning meeting. We're trying to blow through all our emails. So we're prepped for the first session of the day. We had our head down. We're just on the keyboard. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking, oh, man. You know, as important as technology, I used to say this to every secretary I ever worked with, sir, as important as technology is, if we can't change culture, if we can't change behavior, it doesn't matter how much money we spend on technology. you I got to change culture and change behavior.
0: That's an interesting point. And I'm I'm curious, and maybe this would be informative for listeners as well. I've always thought to inject malware or to to really open yourself up to a spear phishing, you'd have to not only open the email, but you'd have to click on an attachment. Is that not necessarily the
1: truth? Like, I mean, it it depends. Some are the majority are set up so it's really atta- the attachment. Now that that attachment can be a file, the attachment can be an image. There's lots of way to lots uh, of ways to embed within attachments. However it is i won't go any details but it is possible to actually make the email itself the source you don't see that very often and really only the high-end nation states tend to focus on that
0: yeah it's a brave new world um it strikes me that with so many vulnerabilities out there like uh, I, i did a little study on cyber when i was at the naval war college and it just struck me and some of my cohorts, I was just like, it feels like it's such a domain now where the attack is much stronger than defense because defense, you're always trying to catch up. You're trying to patch vulnerability. Someone else has got a zero day exploit where, uh, and by that, I mean, they, they're they aware of there's a vulnerability in the system. They've developed a way to, to defeat or to gain access. And then it's your job, if you will, to discover that there's a vulnerability and patch it before they can use the so-called zero day exploit. Does that strike you? Is there is there a ring of truth to the fact that in some respects offense is stronger than defense in the cyber yeah. realm?
1: In general, offense has the easier job. I would also say just one point of perspective. As much as we we don't talk about zero days as much as we used to. Boy, five years ago, I can remember during my confirmation hearing for the jobs, that's all they wanted to talk to me about was zero days. And I said at the time, and it's become even truer said you do realize that about 85 to 90% of the total activity is exploitation of known well established vulnerabilities based on poor user behavior nothing to do with zero days so zero days are a factor but they're not as much attention as they get hmm. not really the biggest shaper or driver of activity i'm not trying to acknowledge they're not a factor but they're not the biggest yeah, so I
0: guess the the follow-on question would be if, if in some respects, in general, if attack is stronger or or more effective on on the whole than d- defense, why haven't we seen greater cyber destructive capability? And so I think I always think about our financial networks. I mean, there's so much, just sheer wealth. It's a it's America's largest competitive advantage over other nations, and not only that, you have to defend yourself against a sophisticated actor like another nation state. You have to defend yourself against that rogue individual who is skilled at cyber, who's sitting in their mom's basement, you know, eating Doritos and and, and criminals.
1: criminals, yeah, exactly three populations criminal criminals, individuals, state actor. I'd say a couple of things. Number one, because you've seen an evolution from a focus purely on investing in the perimeter, i e. build strong walls, stop them from getting in, to most now have a strategy which is we want strong walls, but we have to acknowledge those wall- walls may be penetrated. therefore, Let's invest and create strategy focused on resiliency, about the ability to continue to operate, even if we're degraded. So that's one reason I would argue defensive strategies evolved a little bit. The second thing is most entities, not all, there are truly very few entities who want outright destruction or chaos. Most believe that the status quo Gives them some measure of advantage. And so while they want to use cyber as a tool to gain advantage, they don't want the price of the advantage in the majority of actors out there to be destruction of the status quo, if you will. So they want to push, but they'll only go so far. Where that is not true is terrorists, for example, who, uh, ISIS, for example, they want to destroy the status quo. They have no interest in the status quo, they have a totally different vision of the world and one thing that i look for i was just having a discussion with somebody earlier today about this we're in the world of today where we're facing economic pressures that we haven't seen in literally the life of almost any living when we're looking at you know unemployment between 13 and 20% you got to go back to the 1930s to get to that kind of level when you see the job loss when you see the economic disruption when you see the layoffs, when you see the furloughs, that combined with a society that is incredibly divided right now, combined with the social inequalities, the social justice concerns that so many of our citizens have, very rightly so, where they question, is this structure we've created, does it really give benefit to me? Is it really fair? Is it really equal? Is the reality reflected in the day-to-day world I have to deal with in terms of law enforcement and the justice system? I wonder if you'll start to see civil disobedience with a cyber aspect to it. Mm. Will you start to see people who just feel so frustrated um, for a variety of reasons, as I said, that you begin to see cyber used as a tool to express this sense of anger, frustration? I'd be curious to see that.
0: Well, uh you know, I guess the unfortunate aspect is so far we 've witnessed over at least a little period of time that that polarization that you referred to is has, has become worse, not better, yeah. and we may be headed to a to a time where you you do start to see that um you know I know we have to be mindful of your time, but I guess with the last question, i'd like to turn it over to you. I know you've participated in a lot of interviews, you speak a lot, uh you mentor a lot you know so people come to you with their prepared questions, things they're interested in, but I think a lot of times what I love to hear is, you know, what are the what are the things I didn't ask you or what are the things that you're kind of chomping at the bit saying, oh my gosh, bus, here is like the number one or two <laughs> things that I'd really want a broad audience to be aware of when it
1: comes to cyber? Um, the first is don't be intimidated. You know, I used to, um, you know, my previous life when I dealt with the senior most leadership of our government and, and their foreign counterparts at times, I would often be told by some of these you know, well, very visible and well-known leaders, Mike, I, I don't do technology. This isn't, it isn't me. It's not my background. It's not what I've done before. And I would always say, sir, you're the chief executive of the nation because you understand risk. You know how to prioritize. That's what this is about. It isn't about, you know, that's what you have people like me and, and the team that I'm a part of. Hey, you count on us to understand the technology. So don't be intimidated by it. Um, that would be point number one. Point number two in the end, it's about men and women really creating value and a vision of the future and the part that cyber is going to play in it. I always thought is really the most important thing. As much as I enjoyed the technology, as much as I respected those who were able to develop it, to implement it, and to use it to really generate some amazing outcomes, some amazing capabilities. That both make our lives easier in our personal lives, but from a military perspective, make the probability of mission accomplishment even higher, which is what we always strove for in uniform. And then, you know, lastly, never forget the importance of leadership. I, I might have been the commander, of cyber and the director of NSA, but I always try to remind people, in the end, I'm a leader. And I'm just trying to work with a team to achieve a specific set of outcomes that have been defined. My mission was defined for us. And our job is try to figure out how can we build strong teams, how can we harness the power of teams, how can you motivate teams, and how do you execute mission? And do it in a way that, you know, leads to the development of your people so they have a broader range of experiences and capabilities and they're ready to assume increased level of responsibilities. And at the same time, you are doing it in a way that reflects the legal framework under which we operate in this country and that reflects the legal, excuse me, the ethical and the moral values of our nation. Um, You can't ever forget any of that, and I always thought that was the boy. Particularly as you get more senior and you find yourself spending time in Washington, um, I I found that the moral and the ethical piece, which was a lot harder in some ways. I found the idea of courage on the battlefield. I mentally, you know, when I had been at the unit level on ships, I always thought, okay, I understand it. I'm ready. I, I found the challenges at times. Boy, DC can be very insidious. Really, the media—I think I'm trying to say—media is 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 a bad thing. It has done a great thing for our society, but um, Washington's a unique creature.
0: I think that's a great way to end the conversation, especially as we think about the the current kind of waters of uh, everything swirling around in the nation's capital. I mean, it, we're we're, there, we're not hurting for new pieces of information about just how perilous sometimes it can be working. Uh, as they say, in this town. But Admiral Mike Rogers, thanks so much, sir, for spending your time. I really appreciate not only the insight into cyber, but also the roles you've held as you've served the country for uh, decades.
1: No, thank you, and To all your listeners, hey, everybody stay healthy. And remember, we need to roll up our sleeves and we need to work hard to make this a better world, a better nation. And that's gonna take work and commitment. We gotta treat each other with respect. We acknowledge we're gonna have a difference of opinion. But hey, if we work together, we can do great things. And that's what our history shows. It's when we don't work together. It's when we refuse to respect others. It's when we stop listening. That's when we run into problems. And that's not. There's way too much of that right now. Amen. Just a personal opinion anyway. Thanks, plus.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Admiral. Thanks once again to Admiral Mike Rogers for taking the time to chat with us for our second part of a two-part series on cyberspace. Once again, if you don't mind, please go ahead and just take a second to leave us a five star review. Maybe take a few seconds to also just type up some comments. Let us know how we're doing on the podcast. And with that being said, I'm looking forward to next week's podcast as we talk to author Peter Singer, who is co-author of the recently released book titled Burn In about our digital and automated future. So catch us next week for a conversation with author and strategist Peter Singer. Take care.